0: That's not what I meant, it's not what I'm saying, I was, um.
1: Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor, but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Cass Young. Hello. And together, we're going to explore school leadership in small schools. But first, Chris, what you reading for? Hey, what you reading for?
0: Over the past couple of weeks, I have been reading Diversity in Schools by Benny Cara. It is a fantastic little book about, as you would imagine, diversity in schools, an introductory guide, I think perfect for an ECT or anyone who just doesn't know a great deal on the subject into an understanding of protected characteristics on um, disabilities, much more than that though. It is just a glorious little guide for anyone who's tripping over themselves with bits of language relating to this subject. Um, It gives a wonderful set of recommendations for places to go next in your reading and yeah it's made me realise how little I know about this subject and how much more I'd like to know. What about you Cass, what are you reading for?
2: I'm reading quite, you've made me feel better Chris actually because I don't feel so nerdy, but I'm reading um, Leading Academy Trust by David Carter. I think it's like why some trusts fail, but most don't or something. But um, yes, I'm reading it because um, I suddenly feel really responsible in my new job and should probably learn a bit more about how maths work. And I really like, I've, I've listened to him talk a couple of times and I really like his he's just a realist. And I think that he, it's all about community and about pulling people together and being outward facing. And I really like his, the schools of the trust and the trust of the schools. And that's kind of what they are trying to build um, in my new trust. Um, so yeah, I think I'm learning a lot from it. And it's not intimidating. I think some um, books, particularly around new ideas and and new structures, can be a little bit intimidating. But I don't find that. Yeah, I find it accessible. And I can just pick it up and read a, a couple of chapters and then put it down and think about it. So it's not like a big rush through. And I'm seeing a lot of kind of mirroring and reflection going on as I'm reading it further and further.
0: What about you, Kieran?
1: What are you reading for? Nice. They, they both sound really interesting. I have started Tools for Teachers, which is by Oliver Lovell, the host of the, was it the Education Research Reading Room, you know, wonderful podcast that myself and Mrs. Michael listen to regularly on the way to work. And yeah, it's, it's got some really interesting insights and distillations of some of the, the chats that have gone before. And yeah, I think definitely worth checking out. I'm enjoying reading it so far. Jesse, it's lovely to have you back. Obviously, this is going to be slightly different from before. And in particular, because Christopher, you're going to take the reins.
0: Yep, excited by that. So because we're talking about um, small school leadership this week, I get to play host for a little bit, specifically because I know very little about this subject. I was in a, in a one-form entry school in my teacher training year, but that's about as far as it went. Whereas both of you have significant experience in smaller schools. So I get to pick your brains. So I guess the first question and the most obvious one is what kind of big differences jump out at you in terms of leading a small school compared to one that's a bit more standard?
2: I think it's probably the amount that you need to do. I really do think that that's the difference. I think that you have to wear multiple hats. So you have to have quite a, will, a wide skill set, but you also, I think, have more opportunities in a small school because there aren't many people to do all the jobs. So you end up picking things up that you might not necessarily have intended or thought about doing. And I think that's probably the, I think that's probably the biggest
1: difference. In terms of the number of people who are around, I find that there's a a big difference in, in capacity, you know, in terms of if you're trying to map out the right person for the right job, like Chris, like we talked about when we talked about subject leadership and middle leaders, well, if there are only two full-time members of staff available, they can't all be or both be passionate about history, geography, science, DT, <laughs> religious education, the list goes on. And, you know, so I find whenever I'm giving advice to that extent, when you look at, some, you know, for instance, we're in Kent, and some of the farming villages will have a school that provides for that village, and that village might have 10 children, 15 children. You know, it, it, I think there's a big difference in terms of what your ideal might be, in terms of the provision of education, and it might be that a, a complete mindset, you know, not shift, but you might need a completely different mind, mindset in that situation than you would in a slightly larger school so you know I've, I've experienced working in one two and three form entry schools and i think the biggest difference is along those lines you know you're talking about cast about how you can progress quicker or how there are more opportunities sorry I, progress quicker was my phrase that's that's what came to mind because i think i've seen people in three form entry schools take a lot longer to progress up the the latter than people in one form entry schools, simply because, like you say, there are there's no one else around to do the job, so you get to do it. And you know, like you know, normally before promotion, you do the job without getting paid for it, and then you get the job. You know, that certainly outside <laughs> of work, in my experience.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that has pros and cons. I think sometimes you are doing the job before you are naturally ready for that kind of next step. And I think sometimes that's intimidating. If I think about my job, I started as a Senko two days a week, three days a week, and then I was an assistant head really quickly. <laughs> and then I was head really quickly. And um, I think there was a, a point where I just thought I am not capable of doing this job at all. And luckily I had a really good Coach um, and mentor, and I had a good group of staff around me that had worked with me as a colleague. And sometimes that doesn't work out particularly well because taking the shift into a senior leadership role when you've worked with colleagues can be really difficult. But luckily, we were all kind of really passionate about the school and the uniqueness of the school, and we wanted to keep that going. So they were all there, kind of supporting me, in that and and kind of adding more capacity as we went. But we went from twelve. Originally, I had 12 staff and 44 children. And um, when I finished, I think we had 101 children and 20 staff. So the shift from a really, really small school went to a small school. I don't think it hit, there is like a threshold for groupings as well. I think it's something like 120 or something to be officially a small school. Even that, you know, we doubled doubled the role, more than doubled the role. And actually the, the dynamics changed even from that to that. And I remember standing my first day as as head of school and there were three rows of children and I was standing waiting at the front and one of the staff just said they're all here (laughs) I was just like this is mad with this massive hall and there's just three lines of children and that's it so yeah I think it's, um, it's definitely an interesting place to work and I think there are real strengths in small schools.
0: I mean, so I would imagine in a lot of small schools, a key thing is that your senior leadership team are going to have significant amounts of teaching time as part of their role. Do you find that this changes their perspective at all? Because obviously, I know that some head teachers, in my experience, can feel a little distant from the chalk face, and so will suggest things that maybe don't quite work out, and you know, they're not going to work out. Does that does that not apply at small schools because the the head teacher is much more likely to have a part in the teaching?
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was slightly different because I was the SENCO and the the head. So I was working quite closely with pupils with SEND across the school. So I had, and that was really difficult because it's a head and heart position to be the SENCO and the head. So there there were, and I, I talked about this previously with Kieran that, Sometimes you have to make really tough decisions with your head hat on. And sometimes you really have to fight the fighting champions, some children that not necessarily in bigger schools, there would have been other decisions made. And that's really difficult. But the, the really good thing is that that we had the opportunity because I only had four teachers, all of those teachers for a year taught their specific subjects. So even though some of them aren't passionate about humanities or the arts and they were given those subjects, we said, look, to to make sure you get a really good understanding of what that curriculum looks like, teach children from reception to year six. And they established those relationships really well. And I think that really supported things like transition, but it also really helped with the CPD for subject specialism because... You know, my music lead knew exactly what music looked like in reception and his own class in three and four and in five and six because he taught it all the way through. And it was quite funny for our five, six teacher. He's like, I've got all of these reception children saying hello to me. <laughs> I know. Isn't it weird to be a, a, seen as this scary year six teacher but actually you're teaching reception and you've formed those relationships across the schools. But, yeah, I think you do get... You are... Very operational, um, rather than strategic, in a small school because there isn't there isn't kind of a, a a a banding in between. You don't really have that. I don't know if your experience was different, Kieran.
1: Yeah, I think by the nature of the fact that you know, it's entirely possible to know everyone and every pupil. Those those relationships are slightly different. You know, and I think it, it it becomes more difficult. You know, it's definitely possible that you can become so far removed from the classroom, or just as far removed from the classroom as you might do in a secondary or another secondary, a two form or three form entry school. But I think it's slightly more difficult to fall into that trap because for a small school to work well, everybody needs to be pushing in the same direction. Because with fewer links each of them has slightly greater significance in the movement of the machine, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, I know that a fa- for a fact that a successful school, no matter what size, everyone will be moving in the same direction. But I think a broken cog, you know, tell me when this metaphor falls down, Chris, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a when there are fewer of them causes more damage, I think. And so I, I completely agree. My experience would be the same, but, there's a sense of community that comes with that as well. That you almost feel like this is our this is our thing. You know, we are because we're all driving the same direction, we're all trying to get to the same end point. And because it, you know, I think at times it can be tougher.
2: I was just gonna say, yeah, I I totally see that because I think in a bigger school, if you've got a few people that aren't on board, it's not as noticeable because you've got the majority of doing you know they've got the vision they've got the value they've got the ethos and they're kind of moving along when you've got a handful of people and you've got two people that are kind of blockers to something or they don't agree they have a much amplified a much more amplified voice and you have to because you know those people so much more it's not about pinging an email out saying well you know you need to get on board and if you want a conversation you are literally in the same room as them and you're having those challenging conversations face to face because actually that's you know the great thing is you can send a message in the room you can have a meeting with everyone in you know you don't have to rearrange a whole week's worth of things to have all of the staff in the same room you can do that on a monday morning you know <laughs> and have everyone in the room within a couple of minutes um but you're right i think if you have to work harder at getting absolutely everyone on board because one person does make a big difference
1: i think you're you're also doing that with a limited or more limited budget you know if you, if, if, you know certainly the people i talk to when i talk to colleagues about their two form entry budget and colleagues about their one form entry budget there's quite a big gap and i think that almost you know, you have, you know, one of the reasons why schools were pushed towards academization was so they could have this combined spending power and these economies of scale where that's absent. I and mean, I think what fewer than 50% are actual academies are part of multi-academy trust at the moment. You know, maybe it's around the 50% ballpark. And, um, you know, you've got these schools who are trying to do great things, but almost pushing that stone up the hill in that respect i'm not trying to sell a real negative picture i just think there are distinct challenges that come with being in a small school you know because some of the strengths are that sense of community you know and the fact that you know everyone you know all the kids but i think with greater resources come greater opportunities in a lot of instances
0: i hadn't thought about that at all the idea that if you've got four teachers in a school that there is this sense of Presumably, that it's it's theirs in a way that a school of thirty teachers it, it isn't. You know, it, you've got your class. I wondered along those lines. I know it's probably a bit specific. Have you ever been in a situation or heard of a situation where a school with very few teachers loses like a couple of teachers? Because presumably, if you've got four or five and three all leave at the same time, or are on maternity leave or whatever it might be, it must feel like a massive change in a school compared to say somewhere larger where that just feels much more manageable
2: I didn't have any teachers when I started my job (laughs) um I had so I had a couple of supply teachers and a couple of part-time teachers that were leaving um and so we basically started from scratch. (laughs) And yes, you, I guess the good thing, I was always looking for the positives. The positive thing was that you could start afresh. It was a baseline for the school. And you were saying this is how we want things done. It wasn't, this is how it used to be and this is how we want it done now. It was very much this is we're we're starting again and this is what we're going to start on. Um, You know, behaviour curriculum. Also, I think the people that started at the same time, we, you know, we kept the majority of those staff, they're still there now. They felt like they had an in on, on what we were doing. on um, They had a voice on what we were creating and the culture that we were building. But I, to, I, to be honest, I really think the difficulty with small schools is that families want their children to go to small schools, particularly if they have additional needs because it's they're nurturing environments. You get to know the staff really well. You know, there are less incidents in terms of, you know, 60 children in two classes that are going out for break. If the whole, you know, we were lucky that we had massive playground field forest school. We had amazing facilities. So we were really, really lucky, but that they do become magnet schools. And then that's when the issues with funding really highlight Um, the difficulties in small schools Um, and if you have even just a few children leave that does really impact your budget as well so you have this really difficult position where you want to be completely inclusive and take all of these children in which you do and the cost of that is that sometimes the the support that you've originally put in place then has to change again so you have this kind of onboarding process where you will get another child and then the support needs to move around and change. And that means that it's impacting everyone else. So it's a really tricky balance between saying, yes, come to us because we're a small school and we want to build our numbers. In the majority of situations, I say small schools have always got places, particularly in Kent, because it's such a transient kind of community across the whole of Kent. So, yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to, to balance.
1: Lots of the time, communities are drawing on those within to make sure that you don't have two or three people leaving at the same time. So that, you know, because the head teacher will know every single person who works there, you know, on a, on a potentially a familial or one or two steps removed um level you know so i think it's really interesting that how sort of creative school leaders can be in those situations you know to but i think that only adds to the the camaraderie you know obviously with families it can make things a lot more difficult certainly if my family were working in the school with me i'm not sure how that would go <laughs> but um yeah but i think it, it's it, you know there's a lot of resourcefulness that comes from those kinds of situations
0: You mentioned when you were discussing that um, before um, the idea of there was a discussion of subject leadership and curriculum and I'd quite like to explore that a little bit more because obviously there's a lot of talk on Edu Twitter about curriculum because of the focus on it from Ofsted and because it's something that arguably in some places has been underplayed for a while and a lot of what I see in terms of pushback against some of these conversations is yeah but you don't understand how this works in a smaller school and the reality is I don't and I'd like to know more and so what are the challenges idiosyncrasies things that you think are worth knowing about when it comes to subject leadership and curriculum development in a smaller school be it one form entry or um, half form
2: I really like developing our curriculum and I think that I possibly wouldn't have got that opportunity if I was working in a bigger school as a as a leader, because I think those subject leaders would already be there, there would be enough of them and they would take each section of their subject and, and kind of create something and then we'd all work together to put it together. But I was very mindful of workload with four, with four teachers. Actually we had five because we had um, we had a Schools Direct for the last couple of years and that was really good as well, she was great. But we had to, I wanted the school to teach discrete subjects, but we had to group those subjects so that we didn't have teachers with four or five subjects to lead. So we had the humanities, the arts, etc. And I think that you could really grapple with Kind of what that curriculum looked like. Um, and because we were half form, we had a two year rolling curriculum. So it was kind of a bit of a jigsaw of, you know, where are we putting things? How are we making sure that we're meeting kind of the national curriculum expectations that children weren't missing out because they were in split year groups? But also, I really liked the changes to, you know, I've got some stuff to say about Austin, but <laughs> I quite like their focus on curriculum. Um, and I really liked the the wider curriculum focus. Um, and that really allowed us to think about what those subjects looked like from reception to year six. So I I think we all kind of could muck in with the curriculum development, but I really liked the fact that. I could have control over what that looked like. And then when we started working with subject leaders, it also gave us the opportunity to be a bit more outward facing. I was really aware because there were sometimes five of us sat around the table. Actually, we we, we don't have the expertise for all of these subjects. So we worked with secondary schools and other bigger primaries. And we kind of pulled in other subject leaders and we asked people that were developing curriculums, particularly knowledge-rich curriculums, to look at what we were developing to make sure that we were on the right track. So we, I think there was a deliberate decision that we would be more outward-facing when we were developing that, and that might not have happened with more people.
0: I love that idea. I mean, I love the, the way that you've expressed that, because it's definitely the case, I think, that in some of the slightly larger schools that I've worked in, there's been a sense of self-reliance, which has often had benefits, but in certain areas has led to um, not enough of bringing in expertise from the outside, not enough of just quality assurance from people outside of the organisation. So that makes total sense to me that you would have the reverse of that. There's a a, a natural humility that comes from recognising that, there's no way of course we can all be experts there's only four of us here so even if you know one of us had a history degree one of us had a geography degree you're going to run out so yeah that's um yeah I, I hadn't caught on to that idea at all that's that's really thoughtful I'm gonna have to say you mentioned Ofsted when it comes to curriculum lots of people think that they are not as understanding as they could be of the particular challenges of smaller schools when it comes to curriculum development but also how curriculum is delivered would you say those criticisms are fair in your experience actually
2: I wouldn't oh I sound like I'm sort of championing Ofsted now I'm really not (laughs) (laughs) um but I have it's been mixed actually I've been through quite a few Ofsted's now in the new role so I'm having very mixed experiences on curriculum they've all been fair to be fair Um, but I think that they I think Ofsted had recognised not immediately but I think when it when the curriculum kind of um, framework came out I think they got a lot of kickback from small schools and I think small schools really found their voice in that particular argument because um, a lot of the webinars that I've been to run by HMI's are very specific about small school expectations and I really want to make it clear that small schools were not asking for leeway or lowering expectations because they were small schools. But it was understanding the nuance and the, the uniqueness and the, the strengths and weaknesses that come with small schools. And I, 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 I don't know whether that's been communicated as clearly as it, it could have been. But I always felt like saying, but we're not asking, you know, we're not asking for you to say, oh, well, you've only got four teachers, therefore, you only have to do four subjects really well, because small schools offer a full curriculum. Everyone gets their entitlement, you know and they work incredibly hard, but I think really good inspectors that I've worked alongside during inspections have understand that small schools do have slightly different setups, but are doing as well, if not in some cases, better jobs than bigger schools.
1: I think the elephant in the room could potentially be that... Uh... Offstate, in many instances, are the driver for these changes in attitudes towards curriculum. Because as I was thinking about that question, when I was in a one form entry school, I was there for about seven years, and my first year I was RE lead, no, no, second year I was RE lead, and I know that of the seven teachers, maybe some people had two or three subjects, but they would be the less important subjects back then you know they might still be less important but they certainly got a lot less attention and, you know was it information computer technology you know that was learning to use software on you know on, on a computer every now and again and so you know now i'm thinking okay well would we have had the same capacity to do the job that we are expected to do now had we had to you know be an effective dt art and religion subject leader. And I think trying to think of something practical and useful to say about this is Lloyd's three-phase model. I think that would work particularly well in one form or fewer, you know, half form entry schools, because you could almost have like a high quality scheme in place for the subjects that you don't have time to, to attend to right now. And you could use your four teachers focusing on your three core, you know, priorities. And then in year two, those plates can spin. Well, let's focus on how, you know, the computer science and technology tie up with each other. And then year, and then year three. And then that cycles back round. I don't know because I, I was trying to think. You know, hand on heart, when I was RE lead, was I trying my best to develop curriculum? No, I think I was or, organising the Christmas stuff and the Easter stuff and the special days and things like that. There. But did I ever think and sit and think about how I would sequence the religion curriculum? No, because it already existed from Kent. And I think we possibly, as, as a maintained school, we have to use that anyway. So maybe it's not a great example, but I certainly, it didn't cross my mind. And if we think about someone like Neil, who is clearly very talented when it comes to curriculum, even he knows when to sit back on subjects that he doesn't know that much about, you know, because he knows a phenomenal amount about history and geography. But he has the sense to say, oh, well, actually, I know a little bit less about that. This is not a conversation I can get involved in, you know, if that makes sense. And so when people who spend so much of their spare time developing their subject knowledge, feel like that, I think it, we need to think carefully about the systems we have in place to support. The leaders, the middle leaders in particular in a smaller setting so that they can do the things that will really enrich them as professionals and the experience our pupils get.
2: I think that does lead on to recruitment as well, doesn't it? Because when I started recruiting people, I was trying to be as specific as I could be about the gaps that we had. And that was really difficult <laughs> because it's a small school and I'm asking for a specific subject, specialism, or I was talking to my teachers that were in place saying, would you consider taking on a subject that you've never had an interest in um i think good leadership is good leadership though and i think if you've got the backup of someone that is knowledgeable with their subject knowledge and they're saying yeah that would work and they're giving you the content then managing and leading a subject i think is is pretty kind of standard in in most of the subjects. Please correct me if I'm talking absolute rubbish, but that's how I feel. That I've, and and I think Oster sort of said a few times that uh, we're not expecting you to be have you know we're not expecting you to have this deep fundamental degree level knowledge in the subjects that you're teaching, but you need to know what your subject looks like and how it builds and how you're going to put those kind of milestones in to make sure that you know how your children are doing.
0: On the subject of recruitment, and I apologize if this is a little diversion. Do you think that there are um, particular characteristics of, of um, teachers in particular that suit smaller schools? I mean, I'm, I'm certain, of course, that there's an extent to which you know a good teacher is a good teacher, um, but are there particular ways of thinking about teaching? Are there particular ways of thinking about planning that? Certain teachers have that make them particularly maybe enjoy working in a smaller setting.
2: um I th- I was waiting for Kieran, but he's not going to speak. So
1: <laughs> just being polite. You're
2: guest, you so... were being polite. You don't need to be polite. I'll interrupt you. I'm sure. I think that some teachers are. I think small schools are a bit marmite. You either really like them or you really don't, and I I I don't I think the people that would assume that they don't like it haven't taught in a small school. (laughs) Um, I I I know that when I was in I did a placement I, I worked in bigger schools. Uh, when I was working in London I worked in a, a bigger school and on some of the placements I was working in really big schools and there was that reliance on colleagues for planning so you'd share out your planning and then you would kind of hope that they'd send it back at some point so you could look at it and, and adjust it and look at scaffolding etc for your class and make it more specific to the needs in your class and I didn't particularly like that because I was relying on other people's planning and people don't always like using other people's plans they like to have ownership of what they're teaching and when they're teaching it and how they're teaching it so I think some I think a lot of small school teachers like that they like to have control over their own planning I think that the workload in terms of planning can be more difficult to maintain and that's why you kind of, everyone has to kind of muck in at that point. So those medium-term plans and those long-term plans have to be shared and created together. But yeah, I think, it, I think it's very dependent on that person. I think they need to have really good time management skills and they need to be willing to, to take on a subject that they're not necessarily particularly fond of or interested in. I think that that's teaching. I think teachers are adaptable, aren't they? I think a lot of teachers, majority of teachers are adaptable and, and ready to, to give things a go. I think once you're in a small school, if you like it, that's where you stay.
1: One other important thing is that teachers love control, You know, certainly in my experience. And you're not going to get any more control than when you've got, You know, I think, Chris, you described it before, as your own little island where you're responsible for what happens, you know? makes a big difference and there's a big shock whenever you have to split planning with someone else because I think in most instances where you've been brought up doing it yourself you end up just doing it yourself anyway don't you and because that's the way that you've sort of gotten into the habit of of preparing for lessons so I think yeah I think like you say Cass people who haven't been in a small school they don't realize the the upside. And one of those upsides is the, is that full grasp of everything that's happening in your, in your domain or in your kingdom. And, um, you know, and I, I use those words slightly in jest, but you know, it, it is nice to know that you are in, in control. That, 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 that sense of security can be really reassuring sometimes. And you know, w- when there's a wild card at play, whether that be your year group partner or your, well, somebody else in your phase, that can make life a little bit more stressful, you know. So I think to become a fully-rounded teacher, get an experience in as many different contexts as possible is definitely to be recommended, you know. I think, to go to your original question, Chris, when I think about the type of teacher, the type of planning you have to do, because I was sort of brought up on the old national strategies and we were sitting in August and we decide what we wanted to teach, you know, for the rest of the year. We mapped a lot, out, you know, the word textbook wasn't to be uttered within the school walls and things. I don't know if it would be different now. You know, I hope on some level it would be Were, for instance, a small school with a positive expertise in science might decide to use reach and their resources or a similar kind of product so that. While teachers developed their understanding, they at least had something there. I don't know.
2: What I really liked is when White Rose created split year group planning because I all I could just hear cheers across the country, all these little schools going, yes, we don't have to juggle these ridiculous objectives. We're not teaching, you know, time and capacity to one year group when we're supposed to be doing shape on in another and how are we going to teach that I think you have to be really skilled to teach a split year group class particularly maths writing is easier because you could set the same objective but any structure, you structure scaffold up or down and, and decide what the outcomes are going to look like for each of the year groups um but yeah things like that you have to be absolutely on it and I've seen so many different ways to teach two year groups in the same class either they've split it down the middle and they've set one group off to do one thing, you know, maths, fluency, and while they do the input for the other, other side, or they teach the whole class and then say, you're gonna do this, you're doing this. You know, I think it's fascinating because I'm now working with a lot of small schools. I think seven out of the 10 of my schools are small, either one form or less. And I've seen so many really creative ways to teach really strong lessons. And I think I think that takes a certain type of you need to have a real strategic kind of thought process in how. And that's not just this is the method I'm going for and that's it, it for the academic year. It's from day to day. How are we going to get this lesson to match the, the, the kind of abilities in the class?
0: Is there a sense within smaller schools that you have to be slightly more willing to ignore what seems to other people like sound advice so what I mean by that is for, I got someone got in touch with me when I was talking about reading and saying that I think as, as a default structure for teaching reading your go-to should be whole class reading and they said that's it, that's that's great I teach in a school where I, in my class I have children from reception all the way up to year six how do i do that and my immediate response was oh well obviously not <laughs> obviously you don't do that then if you've got if you're teaching kids phonics over here and over there you've got kids who absolutely can cope with you know his dark materials then yeah that you obviously have to know when to ignore people like me cuz our advice isn't necessarily aimed at situations quite so um individual as that so is there an extent to which you have to trust your own judgment a bit more and say yeah and that person might be given good advice but it really doesn't apply here
2: i'd really love to think that there's a little club somewhere that says all of the advice that small school (laughs) school, schools should ignore whole class teaching for four year (laughs) grades. yeah there is but, and and then sometimes you think, oh, that would be so easy to do, and then you think about your own class in your own school and think that's never going to happen. There are some really good things, ridiculous things that you wouldn't think of that small schools are great at. Um, you can go on whole school trips, and you need one coach, and you can um, pick up and drop off is about three minutes, and that's great. <laughs> and um, you can get everyone in the hall for everything and you you know you have children from reception to year 6 all know each other's names and have really good relationships so there are all those things that if you said that as a small school leader oh we're going on a whole school trip those big schools would be like are oh, you insane 850 children on a school trip you know that's never going to happen so i think it works both ways i think that sometimes suggestions are made and small schools just think no, but they adjust and they'll they'll think, yeah, that's a great strategy. you know, of course, small schools do whole class reading, but they'll do it in a slightly different structure. or they'll start everyone on the same level and then they'll scaffold up for different year groups. you know they'll they'll think of ways, creative ways to make sure that that they're getting the same experience.
0: I think about kids who have made that transition from um, primary to secondary, those that have struggled. And and in my experience, there have been more struggles when I've, you know, you you know, when you used to work in year six and you get year sevens come back to visit you. The ones that I've found have come back and said, oh, they've struggled a bit, or I'll speak to parents and they say, yeah, they're really struggling to get on in year seven. It's more common in my experience that they struggle when they've moved to an absolutely massive secondary school. So one of these ones that's, you know, 2000 kids compared to one down the road that's you know comprehensive with six or 700 which isn't that much of a leap in terms of size and i wonder do you think there's um a a bit more of a challenge for kids when they go from a school that's maybe got 70 or 80 children in it to a secondary school with a thousand or more compared to a child who's already got used to this sense of being and i use the word very carefully but a a small fish in a big pond already at primary in other words do you think there's a a greater challenge of uh, for transition from smaller schools to secondaries perhaps
2: I think all the children I thought would struggle have done really really well and all the children I thought would be absolutely fine really struggled because I think by the time they get to year six they have spent so much time with the same children they are desperate to (laughs) spend time with other people (laughs) Um, and the people and the the children that we didn't think required you know as much nurture or well you know well-being check-ins or you know that formed really strong relationships with adults we think oh they're really going to struggle but actually the groundwork was there that they could form relationships with adults and other children. So when they went to secondary, they're absolutely fine. It always surprises. It always surprised me when I heard about how children were doing. Um, And I would go over to the secondary school in Kent with the grammar stream. A lot of children didn't go to the same schools anyway. So it was kind of normal that some would go here, some would go there. It would they'd kind of mix and match. And I think that that transition work is really important in small schools.
1: I'm always careful to attribute feelings to pupils that might potentially be adult feelings, if that makes sense. You know, so we can think, oh, they, they might struggle with X, Y, and Z, but actually they might just, you know, children are a whole lot more resilient than sometimes they're, they're giving credit for. I'm not saying you, for a second, Chris, are not giving those children credit for being resilient. But, you know, when we hear things like, oh, the, the children are, are really tired... Well, sometimes that's code for the adults are really tired. I'm really tired, you know. And so I think, you know, you just got to see what happens in that situation, because I, I don't necessarily think it's easier for a child who's been to a big school to settle quick, more quickly. You know, they may not have enjoyed their time in that big school. And then they'll think, well, here we go again, but this time for seven more years. You know, so who knows?
0: something that i've not had the chance to ask yet and i'd like to dive into when it comes to setting like a culture and i'm thinking particularly related in relation to behavior are there any differences there in terms of working in a small school compared to something larger
2: i think that you i think it's easier to get your expectations across because there's less adults So that consistency and expectation, is it easier? Yeah, I think it is, it's easier. It's not necessarily easier to get the behavior culture that you want immediately, but I do think it's easier to get the kind of your expectations, you know, this is what we want the culture to be, this is what the you know strategies that we're going to use. I think centralizing, you know, people talk about centralizing behavior. And when you are the only member of SLT, that's really hard because you have to have, We our, our setup was a, a head of school and, and two senior teachers. So you had to kind of rely on the senior, senior teachers to pick up behaviour as well because you are in meetings, off-site, you know, that you're not always consistently there. I think in the first couple of years, I was pretty much, I couldn't leave the school because we were setting that expectation and, and there was that, consistency that needed to happen I think it's easier in that way but I also I really thought about individual children because I think that when you're in a small school children that aren't necessarily conforming to what you've asked them to do stand out a hell of a lot more than in a big school so you kind of get that drift in big schools where you'll have those children that you know, might fidget or might wind each other up, and if you've got a class of thirty or a, a cohort of ninety, you wouldn't notice them as much. But in a small school, if there's ten of them, <laughs> and one of them is being a wind-up merchant, you instantly are kind of on them. So I, I'm not suggesting that behaviour expectations are higher in a small school, but I would say that you pick things up much quicker.
1: I've seen similar systems work in small and larger schools a lot of the principles of effective behavior management are the same but i think those distinctions are the ones that cassie draws you know so if you have high expectations of behavior if you make sure that it's the consistency rather than the severity if you are fair but also show children where the you know where the the absolute limit is then you know you're you're sort of encouraging positive behavior you know and I think that's true whether you've got 10 pupils or, you know, maybe 400 or more, but it it is that intensity. And I think it's an intensity that's shared across, you know, all the key features of school life. You've almost got this little, you know, I'm thinking of a nucleus, but it's not a nucleus, but it's like this, this hub. And whereas when the distance from the hub is, is greater, you know, you've got, points of interference I don't know need to work on that one maybe I'll come back in a couple of weeks
2: I don't know as well what I think the things that I found difficult and I know that other small school leaders feel the same is that there is no kind of steps between what happens in the class if behavior escalates to a point where that child needs to be removed or they we use good to be green which is a standard kind of strategy um if they got a red card they would be sent out for 10 minutes they'd be sent to another class for 10 minutes or they'd be sent to me there's no in between so it goes it feels like quite not extreme but there's nowhere else to go so you go from classroom behavior management there isn't a middle leader that's going to Kind of step in at that point and and kind of bring them back down and and put them back in the classroom. You go straight to the head, so it's that's difficult. And that's the same with parents as well. I found that if parents had an issue, because you are the only person on the gate, they go straight to you, and then there's no one else (laughs) that you can kind of go to. So we would always, you know, we started sending out the message that if you have an issue. You go to the class teacher first, even though you're there, you kind of had to have that step away because otherwise you end up dealing with absolutely everything that's going on in the school. That's And that's where you kind of think, wow, there's an awful lot to get sorted or done.
1: I was teaching a very long time before I realised that you could, the idea of sending kids to their year group partner was a thing or to alternate year groups. I remember... <laughs> these children would show up in my classroom. Why? why are these children here? I know they've done X, Y, and Z, and they they need to spend some time because it's the next thing on the, you know, like you said, there's room for escalation. You know, it doesn't need to go to the the senior leadership team just yet. I was was like, wow, that's a thing? I couldn't believe it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess something that's been hiding under the surface of a lot of what you've said is, I hope in this question, do you think there's anything that larger schools could learn from smaller schools?
1: I think it's very much a case of we can always learn from each other, You know, no matter what phase we're in, what size we are, or where we are in the country. And I think it's about making connections between schools and between colleagues so that the things that are there to be learned we're open to them when they arrive. You know, I don't think there's one specific thing. Like, you know, me and Cass have talked about our experiences, but you can almost guarantee that there will be, you know, plenty of people listening who have had completely different experiences in small school settings and in large school settings, thinking, oh, no, that, that thing that you said that about small schools, that matches up with our two-form entry school, you know? So I, th- so I think the main thing would be a preparedness to learn when the opportunity arises. And I think that's done by making connections between schools, certainly in our local area in the first instance, because, you know, I go back to Matt Swain and he talks about how when his three schools in his Sussex get together, they've got a sixth form entry school rather than a one, a two and a three. And I think that would be the main thing I would hope for because you can never quite tell what you're going to learn. And everybody needs to learn different, slightly different things but I think there's no, there's no greater is better. You know, it's very much a case of, you know, you can have really intense pockets of expertise in a small school. So I think yeah, it's, it's, you know, that's a long way of saying, and most of it will probably get cut and, you know, be prepared to learn from others because there's always stuff we can learn.
2: I'd probably say exactly the same. That, um, I think in small schools, because you're working with colleagues in different key stages, they learn a lot from each other and I think in bigger schools maybe the opportunities aren't there as much to go down you know in key stage two to go down to reception and nursery and look at practice that's going on in there Um, but when you when there is only a handful of teachers they're the only people you can talk to about practice so you're going to get a completely different perspective of how subjects look at different places and strategies and ideas. Um, so I'm not saying that bigger schools can learn that from smaller schools, but I think smaller schools do that more regularly. And I think that does inform their practice going up and down the school. But I think it, I think Kieran's right. I think it is about networking generally. I think it is about being outward facing and taking ideas. There's loads of strengths in small schools. And practice goes both ways, doesn't it?
0: I think the idea that um, working in a small school means that there is almost an enforced humility relating to what you can ever possibly know about curriculum. And this actually directly leading to curriculum excellence because you're reaching out, because you're automatically going, we need to network. We need to bring expertise in that perhaps larger schools don't think to do quite so often. Um, You mentioned about whole school trips. Obviously, I know this is not something that's going to be available to larger schools, but the idea of saying, perhaps with a a greater degree of frequency, this is something that I want the whole school to take part in, not necessarily a trip, but something that isn't just, I don't know, World Book Day, but something that you think, no, this is a way to build a sense of community, which is something that's come across in a lot of what you've said, the, the extent to which there is perhaps a greater opportunity to build community because every child recognises every other child. So the third thing is this sense that arguably there's a greater opportunity for teachers to take ownership and feel like the school is is theirs in a way that it isn't necessarily the case in a larger school. And um, again, this is maybe one that I've picked up that has come across subtly rather than intentionally. But the idea that smaller schools, through necessity, develop a a sense in which they are willing to stand their ground in defending their unique personal circumstances in a way that larger schools, because they can feel just a bit more ordinary, might not um, be quite so ready to do. Again, all of those might be a bit of a reach, um, but that's a few of the things that I've taken from the conversation in terms of what perhaps larger schools can learn from those people who have worked in and led smaller schools sorry l- worked in and led larger schools
2: I think you're spot on <laughs> maybe we just don't want to say small schools are better because
0: <laughs> no you, no you're not allowed to say that no they're definitely not better because <laughs> I've never worked in one and that would make me feel very sad I think um,
2: that's what you're I saying Chris I think that's
0: You've genuinely made me think that I've missed out a little bit in my career, that I haven't had that opportunity, that I haven't worked, say, in a one-form entry or a half-form entry school just to, you know, get that sense of community, to, to, to feel like I've got this small team to work in. Then again, maybe in the future, you never know.
2: I, do you know what the funniest thing is? That most small schools, the buildings are always like little teeny tiny Hogwarts places because they're also they're old buildings that have not been changed for years. So you've got these crazy kind of classroom sizes and walkways and so if you want to do a tour, Chris, we could do a Kent tour of small schools.
0: Oh I'd love that. Yeah I'd love that (laughs) we go around (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that are there any just last thing then? I guess, are there any other senses in which smaller schools are like idiosyncratic in that way? I mean, obviously, like you say, the buildings because you know, in some cases, they're an old village hall or that's been converted or whatever it might be. Are there are any other ways in which, um, you think these schools are, are just a bit odd? Because, in my <laughs> experience of just institutions generally, the smaller they get and the fewer people they have within them the more that they have the possibility of like having like a unique personality. One of our
2: schools um, is surrounded by an apple orchard. Another of our schools you can't drive to, so you have to walk down a lane to get to it. Another one has ducks. Um, <laughs> they're <laughs> because they're normally rural, they are in really odd places so every day is a different adventure when you're uh, (laughs) visiting these schools I wouldn't say that there's a collective kind of they're all you know different in this way and I I quite like that you know that, that all of the schools have autonomy and uniqueness in their own right as well as being small
1: I mean the one thing when I'm listening to Cassie talk you know and I'm thinking right well lots of people ask about what's the answer for small schools and someone requested we discuss small schools and i don't think it's gonna be for the last time you know i said it quite a bit but i think we need to really talk with lots of people about how they deal with it because it's the flexibility and you can't sell flexibility because if someone had was able to sell the answer to small schools then they would be millionaire you know several times over and the reason they haven't done that is because it's that flexibility and that thinking on your feet and being prepared to do something completely different on one day that you do on the next day. That's what really stood out whenever I was listening to you speak. And I think that's probably where we pick it up next time when we come back to um, small school leadership. So all that's left to do is say thank you very much, Cassie.
2: Thanks. It's been lovely.
1: Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.